Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to part two of this episode of Move. Jamie, are you ready? Dude, I'm always ready. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be inspired, which is our word that we love to use. Let's do this. Part two of Move. So you launch it and uh, you're 34 years old and you are going, right, here we go. How do you, and you know nothing, like you said, about FMCG, you know nothing about packaging, you know nothing about working with factories, you know nothing at all, which relates to us, Ed and I, mm. Matthew, more Ed. I was just in the Familiar background. Story. Uh, Ed and I, really, I was in the background going, it's all me. And in <laughs> fact, it was just Ed doing everything. Uh, I just quite like the spotlight. Um, but it, you had to do this all by yourself and understand everything. And for our listeners out there who are going into selling a product, who are in the same case, you know, Ed and I, we get a lot of questions. How do you find out about sweets? How do you find out about this? How do you find out about that? How did you find out about all these areas which are so you can't just Google it. How do you do it? I mean, I asked a lot of questions of a lot of people that I didn't know. So to your point earlier about um, being kind of confident enough to put yourself out there, I had to just pick go up and the do that. phone and yeah. go and do it and get knocked back a hundred times. I mean, it's like being rejected by a boyfriend like over and over again. But I just had to put myself out there. And, and I, I did a lot of it myself. So we built a manufacturing site to start with. I learned how to be a manufacturer, which when you're supplying supermarkets is no mean feat, by the way. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, I learned the hard way how to So do where it. did it start? And t- talk us through kind of what is Botanic Lab in your words? In my words, Botanic Lab is we make drinks that do something. So healthy is not particularly interesting, but our drinks are innately healthy. So low sugar and natural ingredients and all that. What do you things. mean it's not interesting? I think everything's healthy these days, yeah. isn't it? I mean, so what does it even mean? You know, is low sugar even really healthy? I, I, I kind of don't really There's buy into that stuff. Jamie and I, asked me. <laughs> are, they, are they healthy drinks? Yeah, said, well, and healthy, it gets, it gets misused, drink. it gets overused. Yeah. And also, I'm not the kind of person who wants to guilt people into buying something because it's healthy. I think they have to buy it because it tastes good, because it does something for them. Yeah. So the layer that we put on top of that is that, that it does something. It's drinks that do something. And the cannabis drink is a perfect... Um, coming together of those values in that it is one of the most interesting functional plants I think that that there has ever been it's steeped in heritage it's got so much history behind it and it genuinely does something Um, and we were brave enough and and risk hungry enough to do it first. Fantastic and what is and what does the range look like now because you have lots more yeah, the range now range. primarily is centered around products that look like this. So they're um they're canned um botanical teas that each have a functional drink a functional ingredient in them that that adds a layer of interest. So this one happens to be cannabis. Okay. So you had this range of drinks mm-hmm. and you said okay, we want to take these to to retail first or did you sell direct so we sold direct go? to consumer to start with on a website, um, which when you have uh, the first iterations of our drinks were chilled and had to be maintained, chilled and had a four day shelf life. Try doing that fun. online. No. Not fun. You yeah. had a four, four day shelf life. Four day shelf life. What? Yeah. 
Yeah. Were they flying off the shelves? Uh, well, we were, we were doing it direct to consumer online. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we started working with like some of the, the sort of big flagship stores like Harrods and Fenix and those kind of places. And those are great for building a name. You're never going to make sure. your money out of those kind of things. But they're, they're good for attracting the attention of a certain type of consumer who helped to build um, noise in these kind of brands. Yeah. So at a time when healthy food and drink was becoming more of a focus in the UK market and people were prepared, prepared to pay a premium for it, I guess we were setting the trends a little bit ahead of time. So we made the first charcoal drink on the market. You can find quite a few in the supermarkets now. We were always like kind of one step ahead, which is great from a marketing story when you're trying to build scale in an FMCG business, not necessarily ideal. Because it doesn't yeah. work, doesn't sit on the shelf. Because you're always too far ahead. I mean, it's kind of... I, mean, I think that Jamie and I have gone through this absolutely with Candy Kitten. So we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast already. But just, I think, for anybody else that's looking at that food and drink world, which is mm. a big, scary place, how did you make that first move towards retailers? What did you... What did you do in kind of simple terms? In simple terms, for, for businesses like these, and I'm sure it was the same for you, the most powerful thing that we have is that we're an owner-managed business and we have a story and we have a personality. And even, even now, it's so much more powerful when I'm in the room do it, and that's not always possible. And that's because you know the story. Because you know the story. Because well, they are, buy, they buy the you. They buy you. They buy. They buy the blood, sweat, and tears that you've put into this, and the extra care and attention, and the story of why middle-class white woman went into selling cannabis in a drink. You know, they, they buy that, um, but that's not always possible now. So I think that's the most powerful thing you have as a young food and drink brand is telling that story in a very genuine way as compared to in the drink space, you know, a Coca-Cola who it's soulless, it's no one's interested in it and they just buy space on the shelf. So you're always going to win on that front. The challenge is then once you're on the shelf, how you get the product to move, how you get people to see it, which for you guys I think was probably easier because you had that platform, but how you build that platform for a brand um, and how you kind of actually put some scale behind things then. Well, for us, the reason why we were probably seen is because, uh, and I think, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but for us, it, ours was, uh, you know, ours was in a sense a lot of mistakes we made. You know, we thought in our head that we wanted to make them gluten-free because we thought that was a good idea. No one was doing that. We wanted to make them bright and colourful because we liked the colouring. We thought that was great. You know, we created uh, we created an industry called Gourmet Gummy Candy. You know, we created that by accident because we just liked that. And the same with you, you're making a charcoal drink. Was that a calculated decision? Or do you think, well, oh, I think that's quite a good idea. How do you come to those things? Like us, we just thought, well, we like that. And that's when naivety, again, is such yeah. a powerful sort of um, powerful sort of tribute to have. In the beginning, it was very much, what do we like? Oh, I like that. Like the look of it. The same as you. Oh, we'll do that. And not really thinking commercially, is this viable? Um, and what that did is get lots of attention, but what it didn't do is fill the bank account with money. Um, so I've had to get smarter about finding the trend that I think is going to work, but actually working backwards in a way that we think we can make that scalable, affordable. And I, I say this to people about, about the CBD industry. The CBD industry is full of brands selling products at quite premium prices. And um, for me, the opportunity in cannabis is in FMCG, fast moving consumer goods. And they're not going to move fast anywhere unless they're priced at a price where people are going to take them off the shelves. So finding that sweet spot where we can be innovative and unique, but not price ourselves out of the market has been a big challenge. And for I see us. there's quite a lot of other people now kind of joining that space. Is mm -hmm. that getting to a point where it's becoming commercially kind of a real 
category? It is, yeah. I mean, the, the amount of investment in this space is phenomenal now. I think it's it, it's unlike any other, I don't call it a trend, I think it's unlike any kind of movement in food and drink and outside of food and drink that we've seen in a long time. The challenges are structural because it's very new and there's a lot of grey areas around regulation and, and legality. There are structural challenges in getting products to market. So there's huge consumer demand, but the, the retailers are about three or four steps behind that right now. So trying to marry those two things up when you also can't have a payment processor online who online who sells will sell it are all very challenging. Wow, what an exciting time to be in! I just great opportunity, great in those opportunity, times. and, and yeah. that's where you're, it's the wild west. The and great that's where the risk be. appetite comes in because actually, if you were sat at your desk in a big drinks manufacturer, yeah. you'd probably sell, sit and wait and see what happens. Where if you sat in my desk, it's like. Let's do this. Let's go for it. Yeah. Can, can I ask, this is for our listeners as well, because uh, a lot of people who are, I think, if setting up a product or doing whatever, uh, because what we're so used to, right, and this is my issue with uh, the educational system, and I'm, this is just my opinion, uh, where firstly, you, I've said this before, Ed, where you, you're not allowed to collaborate, you're not allowed to copy, you, you can't do anything, you have to do it all yourself. And in the, the world that we live in, actually collaborating is the most important thing. We're sitting here talking about everything. We're collaborating, right? But not only that is that, you know, at school we're taught that you have to go to the history teacher in order to know about history. You have to go to this person to know about that. Um, and in the business world, do you think it's important to have someone with the knowledge of the industry in order to sell the product that you want to sell? Because you didn't do it. We didn't do it. But have we made a mistake by doing that? I've asked myself that question a lot. I mean, do I need someone, whether it's a shareholder or an advisor, who is who is more familiar with soft drinks? Um, I think we're probably past that point now. Um, but then that answers the question. No, you didn't need it. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, we might have got there quicker. Um, a few less twists and turns. I think it's important to have – I found it invaluable to have someone who who'd built a business from scratch. Mm-hmm. Because there a are just in a sense. yeah, because there are just times when you just want to give up, and it's just too awful. Yeah. And actually, it seems like there is no way forward. And when it's like that, you actually need someone who's done it to say, Do you know what, I've been in that position. Um, you can get out of it like this, or you need to do this, or you, you need to think very carefully about stopping doing this, or you know, whatever whatever that might be. Or just to reassure you that. You're it not, happens. It, it does happen to people yeah. and you're not the only one. And Ed, we have that all the time. Absolutely, Ed, yeah. Because, you know, Ed and I, we're eight years into our business, but still we always say, when is it we spoke to Nestle? Would they would they see this as a problem or a success? If we spoke to Haribo, would they see this? And we just don't know because we're inexperienced. However, now super experienced, but still inexperienced yeah. in those areas. So I just want to just focus on that one thing because that's a huge tip for the listener. You don't need someone in the industry who is a expert at it. However, what is a big advantage is someone who has a business knowledge and someone who's there to work as a mentor. It doesn't matter what they've done, but just someone who understands those things to drive you forward. That's the most important thing. I've, I find it really invaluable to have that. And just from a... Um from an emotional level, as it like the the biggest strain I find in doing this is is emotionally keeping going, and I've found having that that support has been invaluable to me. But also, even if you are the only, you, you don't have someone in in your business with previous experience, knowing that you're not going to be good at everything and, and understanding the things that you aren't good at is really important, and and getting to know that really quickly because if you try and do everything, you are going to get it wrong. And hiring the right people to do the right job has been has been an interesting journey for me. But once once you get it right, it's like, I wish I got there a long yeah, time before. But not that. easy to get right. Not easy to get right, no. So let's focus on that bit of the hardship behind it, because I mentioned to you this before. Uh, 
Be totally honest. How hard have you found it? It's just fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the honesty. So great. It's true. This is what the podcast is about. It's about being open and honest about things because it is not easy. You see these. I, I get so frustrated by these podcasts and by these panels where it's like entrepreneurs saying how amazing it is work-life balance and I love being an entrepreneur and I love talking on these things. It is absolutely appalling <laughs> a lot of the time. But... I would still do it again. I wouldn't change it. The challenge is something that I've thrived on. If it fails tomorrow, I would still value the experience of having done it. And it's absolutely life-changing for me from a kind of personal perspective. In what those, ways? In what ways? I mean, I said to you before, I'm not the same person now that I was when I started this in in, in really in a really positive way. I genuine, genuinely believe honestly now, whereas I might have bluffed it before, that I can do anything. I could do this again with anything and I would... I feel like I'm I'm an incredibly capable person now because I've had to be an incredibly capable person. So I have a lot more self-belief than when I started. Um, but it is it's hard and it's still hard. Like some days I just, I mean, I, we laugh about it. I just want to hide under the bed sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but, the, but that's honest. That's true. That's yeah. the, the reality of being an entrepreneur. A lot of people yeah. see it. You know, the sexy term nowadays is entrepreneur. Yeah. That's, you know, Ed interviews a lot of people who come into Candy Kittens and Ed will say to them, what do you want to do in five years time? And they say, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. And, and they don't understand how tricky it is to actually become that. And actually, at the end of the day, we say this in, in our title, hard work and focus. And that is the key thing when setting up a business it is about that. You know, Rebecca, you also, uh, you, have a, you had a co-founder. I did when I started, yeah. We speak to uh, lots of people and, and through the podcast, people have been emailing in and asking advice and tips. And so many people actually say, well, I just, I've got this great idea, but I really need a co-founder. I can't start without a co-founder. What yeah. would you say to those people? I think it's an excuse. I, I think people find excuses to not do them. One of them is co-founder. One of them is I don't come from money. One of them is I don't have... X, y, there are many excuses you can make. Yep. You start with what you've got. And if so you've got a co-founder, great. If you don't, you might find one along the way. Yep. Um, I would all encourage anyone who is going to have a co-founder to get to know them properly first mm-hmm. and make sure they're the right one because it's like a marriage um, and difficult to get And also from, my, from our experience, I'd say that a co-founder relationship's about being a, that kind of yin and yang, the cliche, yeah. but you have to really both bring different things to the table because yeah. otherwise if you're both doing the same job, then it's just going to be yeah. constant exactly. clashes. And you also then clash as well because you, you, you being similar is that, you know, this is why you sort of see parents, you see mothers and daughters or, or fathers and sons where they're similar, they clash with each other because their opinions are sort of, you're, you're not, you're, because you're so similar, you actually it doesn't work yeah. you sort of repel each other yeah. almost I alluded alluded to it earlier though but I haven't done this on my own in that I've had I've had investors and mentors who are investors in the business who have supported me and although not kind of executives in the business have helped me I haven't done this on my own you can't do it on your own sure. so I've built no. it with other people one other person in particular um, so I guess I have in some ways had a kind of of course I think that in some ways is similar to the the sort of uh, reasons perhaps to have a co-founder is knowing your own limitations and knowing where perhaps you need help and not being afraid to ask for it. Yeah. So whether that's in a co-founder or the staff that, that you, the team you build, yeah. the investors you seek, whatever yeah. it might be, knowing what you're missing and yeah. filling those gaps. Yeah. And talk of the things that you were missing. You know, your your co-founder was the chef, and so I assume that the, the chef was very good at making the product, and so he understood that kind of world of things. So the product side of stuff that was sorted, and I assume you brought the, as you said before, you said at the beginning, the financial side. You understood how to deal with that, build businesses, understand that that world. What was your biggest kind of uh, problem that you faced? Because for us, Ed and I, you know, we were very creative. We had a marketing plan. We had all these things going on. We had ideas, but 
But when it came to the financial side, we didn't realize how important it was to understand cash flow mm. and understand that this is going to cost this and you're going to make this and your margins. Those are the things that we probably didn't focus on as much as we should have done, which is also the most important part. So what did you find tricky when when, when I first started? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There were some challenges in that area, to be honest, in that I had a you know, a co-founder who was a chef who wasn't necessarily focused on margins and viable products. So you have all these great ideas, but translating that into something that is um, commercially viable didn't marry together that well. So that was one of the, the actually the biggest challenge. And I, whether you're from a financial background or not, I think it's a challenge people often have. You have these great ideas, but great ideas, making great ideas commercial is the is one of the biggest challenges you're going to experience. Yeah. Um, you know, marketing and kind of marketing plans and branding to a certain degree are a matter of taste and it's kind of it's kind of the fun bit around it but actually getting something that in your eyes is perfect and making it perfect but saleable at a price that people are going to buy that's that's quite a bridge to cross sometimes and it's amazing how many people overlook that yeah. part particularly in food and drink i think yeah. people just focus so much on that taste or the the, yeah. the product quality yeah and have absolutely no time for what it's going to cost yeah. or how much money it would make them. And that's what's so great. And having you in the room, because you you have dealt with buying and selling businesses. You did that for so many years. So you understood what you, the money side of things. And and for a lot of people starting out, they say, well, I've only got five grand. Is that enough to start about? You know, how did you know how much money you needed? Or did you not know? Or how did you estimate, you know, the startup revenue that you had to have? I drastically, coming from a financial background, drastically underestimated how much money you'd need in consumer products. Everyone does. Yeah. Everyone does. Consumer products businesses will always need more money. They Why is that, They still need though? more money. In your opinion? Um, well, to start with, it's not a service business, to state the obvious. So to make a product, you have to have money. Even when you're making money, you have to have money working capital to cycle that product. The bigger you get, the bigger that problem gets. So even when you're successful, you still need more money. Um establishing a consumer product is a quite a long, you know, it's quite a long process. Um, so it's not as simple as just make a product, design a product, gets on the shelf, it starts to sell, off we go to the races. It's never that simple. There are many product iterations that come between that, um, many brand iterations for us. Um, and then when you do find something that works, it's not a straight line from there. As I said, as it becomes successful, you have to have working capital to cycle the product. Um, as you get successful, you will have bumps in the road in the case of cannabis um, regulatory kind of problems and structural problems in the industry that you have to be able to weather. And therefore, by that point in time, you've built a team, you've built an infrastructure that you have to fund. And if you're kind of experiencing challenges 
that are regulatory, you need to be able to carry on funding a business. So it, it takes much more money than I ever thought it would. And when I speak to people from big businesses like Unilever or Pfizer or whoever they are, they're like, you know, we put aside five years, 10 million quid to build a brand. So, you know, well done for doing it on what you've done it in. You know, it's kind yeah. of... That's what well, that's what we always say. We spoke to, um, you know, the, uh, the, there's a confectionery company out there that they launched a brand new chocolate, and they're huge. You know, they got marketing. Uh, they chucked five million behind it, and it and it failed. Uh, and that's five million just for uh, one of their new products. Um, and, and it's it, a product that no one's ever. You would not know about it. You've never really heard of it. it no, no one's <laughs> ever heard of it. And it's just it's it's interesting. So it's so important to know that, that like, God, we, you know, and, and there's a big fictional kind of thing that uh, people believe that Ed and I started with a tree of money. We, we had, we had nothing. We started on a complete shooting budget. And but that's another excuse that people use when they say, well, I, I haven't done what you've done because I didn't have any money when I started. It's yes. another excuse that people use. And I have the greatest of respect for anyone who's done this because it doesn't matter what you had when you started, you actually got up and you did it. And that's the big, the biggest, hardest thing to go and do. Take the risk. Yep. And, and we always come across this question because, you know, for Ed, he always says the biggest thing that he learned when uh, being MD of Candykins is that actually he just had to realize that actually it wasn't about thinking of new products and what we're going to do for the next marketing thing. He actually just realized that actually just become managing people. Um, and this is what he suddenly realized. Actually, just start managing people. That's what you do. Is that what you had to learn as well? Did you? What were the big things that you suddenly started to figure out? You were like, oh, God, I didn't realize this was going to happen or that was going to happen. Yeah, People are always a challenge. I think you need, to state the obvious, you need people to grow your business. Um, I don't know what you did, but I got in this position where I, I was kind of doing everything, which is not tenable. And it's also, I'm not good at everything. So it's like I'm becoming this stymie to the business growing because I'm doing it because no one else can do it as good as I can. So yeah. like I'm doing everything. So you have to you have to hire people. And it's very difficult to find really good people who are as committed as you are and they're never going to be as committed as I am to this for obvious reasons so they're never going to be as good as me and it's quite difficult I'm quite demanding I think and it's quite difficult to find people that will meet that kind of so how do you find those people then? How do you, if you're an individual going out there and you don't have a co-founder and you're starting to hire your first individual? A lot of trial and error. Uh, is, it, is that yeah, what it is? A lot of trial and error. And I, being totally honest with you, I've, I've been through quite a lot of people trying to find the right personalities for a small business, for an entrepreneurial business, the right mix of kind of hardworking, entrepreneurial, but also quite disciplined. And, you know, because I'm that odd mix of people. I've got this disciplined, structured, kind of formal career but I'm an entrepreneur as well. So I have this kind of quite a free flowing way of working and finding people who can fit into that, I think is probably quite challenging. And when you say trial and error, though, that obviously means that you've tested people that haven't worked. And so then you've you've had to let them go and move them on and things like that. And that's a tricky as well, because that is an aspect of running a business, which is a, is the really hard part. And you have to be quite brutal you, about it. There we go. And I think yeah. uh, probably that's another piece of advice is that if it is not working, with an individual, and people are probably sitting here listening to that, going, "It's just not working," but they're probably not approaching it because it's easy not to easier not to approach it. What do you say? How do you approach those situations? You in our, in our as an entrepreneur in our job, you are not going to be liked by everyone. You're probably not going to be liked by that many people. And I have to make a commitment to myself that I give it three months to work, and if it doesn't work, it's, they've got to go. That's harsh. Yeah, but that's just the line you have, and there it, you go. It's it's pointless otherwise because. Also, I have a responsibility for the other people who work for me to create a livelihood for them and build a business that they can carry on working. If I've got people who aren't working or aren't, for whatever reason, aren't 
aren't functioning properly, it's not fair on everybody else because the burden of that falls on to everyone else. So you have to, I think, make the decision quickly. Don't get me wrong, the first times I've had to do that, I find that more challenging. It's it's not as challenging the more times you do it, but it's difficult. And certain roles are more difficult to fill. Um, sales are always a role that's really quite difficult. Find a good salesperson, never let them go. You know, those are roles that are always challenging to fill. Um, but yeah. And with your product at the moment, you know, what is your what is your aim? Is your aim growth? Is it what is it? What are you focusing on at the moment? So I, I wanted to build a business that I could scale and ultimately sell. That was kind of the aim. It still is the aim. Um, I think where my job now is a combination of spot the gap in the market, which clearly we have done, um, provide enough fuel in the tank to make it grow to a scale that's attractive, and then ultimately we will sell the business. It's an interesting point that you say you, you set out to scale and, and, mm. and sell. Does that, do you think, kind of um, guide the way you run the business, knowing that you're, you're planning for that exit one day? I think if most people in my position are honest, that's everybody's aim. The timescale might be different and they might be less of a, about saying it, but it is the aim that ultimately... You, you don't build a consumer products business for a lifestyle business. It's just, I mean, why would you choose that lifestyle? But weirdly, <laughs> weirdly, the Germans do do that. I mean... That, uh, that, different market. Different yeah. market. Yeah. Different, they yeah. do. Countries, you know, yeah. yes, yeah. different countries. We, we had this fact the other day, which is, it's totally not the British way of doing things. Uh, you know, 53% of businesses are still family-owned in yeah. Germany yeah. because they do that. They yeah. just like holding on to business. But in the UK, we don't have that mentality. We're about building something and then selling it and then starting on to the next, which perhaps isn't bad or, or, or right. I don't think it's bad. I think it's structurally the way our kind of retail environment looks at the moment. It's it's a reality of it. it it's, it's very difficult as a small business to have the firepower and the balance sheet to be able to compete with in drinks, the big kind of yeah. drinks behemoths. Because even, even when you gain scale and popularity, you have to have incredible budgets to be able to compete for shelf space and those kind of things. So I think that's a big challenge to get beyond a certain size in this in in our industry. Well, um, that's a key key point because it's so true. You have to you have to understand that it is a gigantic mission to try and take on the likes of Coca-Colas or Pepsi's or whoever they are because their infrastructure is just so great that it is quite hard to do those things, they, right? They own the market and they own the shelf space and and trying to compete with that it takes money. It takes a lot of money. So that's always a consideration. That has changed a bit. I mean, I think in drinks in particular, the number of challenger brands and the number of, of brands doing something from scratch and unique and making the, making that market work in a slightly different way is, yeah, that, that that's changing. But also the high street has huge, huge challenges at the moment, which in some ways helps us because the big retailers are looking for things to differentiate themselves and therefore stocking Coke on your shelves is not going to do that. So, you know, there's there's opportunity there. But I think for any entrepreneur doing doing this kind of thing, it's about picking your time in the market and picking the right time to kind of potentially de-risk your position. Can I ask you a big question? Now, if you were talking to someone who wanted to set up a business and they didn't really know what they were doing. You've been on both sides. You've been in a service-based business and you've done a product business. Which one would you say go and do? Depends on your... I I think a service-based business is easier to start from scratch. Um... In that, and it's easier to start generating a, a kind of a revenue generating model. To state the obvious, you go out there, you sell your service, money comes in your pocket, you go out, you do it again, money goes in your pocket. So I think it's a simpler process. I think consumer products, 
they take, they're much riskier. So you have to have a lot more money, you have to build um, inventory, you have to hold inventory, you have to cycle inventory. Those things take more money, therefore more risk. Um, but they're sometimes a bit more exciting. And at the end of it, there is something more to sell. Because when you sell a service business, you're selling people and that's quite a challenging thing to do. So I think they have pros and cons on each side. I think if you're going to go into a consumer products business, be prepared that you do need to have money behind you. You need to raise that money. Absolutely. Rebecca, it's been incredibly interesting. I think we've learned lots about God, what I it takes to launch a consumer start business. Start the business again. <laughs> Let's go and do it. And all of the personal struggles that go with it. No, it's really, really incredibly interesting. I just wanted to finish on one question that we ask everybody at the end of the podcast. Um, if you were to start a completely new business tomorrow, forget about Botanic Labs, what do you think that would be and, and why? Put you on the spot a little question. bit so you can have a couple minutes to think. If I you think like. um, if I was to start something completely new again, it would, and I, I would say this, but it would be in the cannabis space. I, I genuinely believe in that industry. I believe in its um, growth potential. I think it's one of those industries that has this perfect mist, mix of kind of history and social impact, but also has huge investment and the potential to the potential to grow in something really interesting. So I would do something in the cannabis space, not necessarily what I'm doing now. Um, so watch this space. Love that. Okay. Rebecca, thank you so much. For, have you had a good time on the podcast? I've loved it. Thank oh, you. We've loved to talk to you. <laughs> and where can you. people pick up a can of Botanic Lab if they want to? You can pick up can, uh, Botanic Lab products in Co-op, in Sainsbury's, in Holland and Barrett, um, on our website, WH Smith. On your high street, basically. Fantastic. Hey, listen, before we start, I just want to say incredibly inspiring and open and honest. And this is what we love. It's so true. People listening to this podcast who are out there trying to sell a product, you can take so many tips and advice from this. It's just so great to have someone like you who who speaks about that because you don't get this information easily. Uh, so really, thank you for coming on Move. We really appreciate it. And come back again. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. How honest and open was that? I love how you say, wow. Hey, wow, buddy. <laughs> um, no, too so good. Also, what was great about Rebecca is, you know, I, I really love the fact that she had no idea what she was doing. She didn't, she didn't know the market. And I always say this, people believe that they need to have a knowledge of the market in order to do it. But naivety in business when you're starting out is the best thing in the world because you don't follow logic. And that's what we did with Kenny Giddens. Totally. I mean, for us, starting the business, naivety was, I think, probably one of our our biggest strengths, yeah, weirdly. We, yeah, we had no idea. We made them gluten-free because we thought that was better. No one else is doing that. We made the packaging different. We made them more expensive than anything else. But I think what we learned from Rebecca today is that sense of bravery. You know, she wasn't scared. She wasn't put off by the fact she didn't know. She actually just knuckled down, went out and asked the right questions, learned so much along the way. And now she's probably one of the top kind of CBD experts in food and drink that there is. Yeah. Also, what I love, as you said at the beginning, is the honesty of Rebecca. You know, starting a business is not easy. It's all about hard work. And she was very open and honest about that. It's true. At the end of the day, what the most... The most important point that you can take away from this is that it's going to be hard work. But that is exciting. That is fun. And that's what you just have to be prepared for. Totally true. And I think as Rebecca has left some lovely CBD drinks here for us, taking some of that makes that hard work just a little bit easier. <laughs> really, really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Rebecca. So we've come to the end of series one of Move. Thank you so, so much to all of you that listened. We would absolutely love you to come back and see us for season two. We'll be back with you on January the 6th. Please, please slide into our DMs, send us an email. We'd love to hear 
which guests you'd like us to speak to, the topics you'd like us to cover, and also your stories. We'll definitely be featuring your stories in season two. Yeah, just please get in touch as much as possible. It's super simple. We have the email address, uh, move at moveclub.co.uk, our Instagram at moveclub. Uh, we want you to be on this journey as much as we want to help you on this journey. So please get in touch with anything at all. Hey, and also... Get ready for season two. It's going to be amazing. But firstly, we've got to say, hey, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, it really does mean a huge amount. And we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion. Now, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. And if you'd like to get in touch, please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on Instagram at moveclub. Until next time, this is Move. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.